Welcome to a special edition of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Back in January of 2018, a little over two years ago, I had our friend, our late friend, the amazing John Andretti as my guest for the Week in IndyCar show. And as I told John then, once we were finished recording, it was my favorite episode to date. And more than two years later, having listened back to it over the weekend, just a day or two after his loss to colon cancer, that's still the case. It is absolutely my favorite episode we have done of all them with so many amazing folks that have joined in for the half hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. John spent more than two hours with us back in January of 2018. And the reason being just a flood of questions in this listener driven Q&A format of folks wanting to connect with him, knowing that he has made so many friends, so many fans across an impossible number of racing series. The impact, the result of his life was felt just in the number of questions that came in, the diversity of questions. And I think folks really, really liked the fact that they could not only connect with him, but get some insight, get some stories on his time, whether it was in NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars, the time he went drag racing, the time he raced down under in Australia, so many different things. So listening back to this over the weekend, it's one or two things that stood out. First, it was recorded back then with an old recording format of mine, long before I was able to acquire better equipment and a better space to capture higher quality audio. So the sound quality was not something that made me particularly happy. As well, a little bit of a technical issue that led to some persistent clicking throughout the interview. Long story short, having listened back to that Week in IndyCar episode, which is still sitting there if you want to listen to the original format, just did not make me very happy. I should have spent more time editing that interview and trying to perfect the sound as best I could back then. So what I wanted to do here is do exactly that. Go back do everything that I could to fix that audio. It's not the best that it could be, but it's the best I've been able to make it. And second, a bit of an older format style of the show as well, where we opened with news of the day, interacting with our guest, getting their thoughts on it. So wanted to frankly cut out a lot of the content, a lot of my own insertions about whatever, and really just try and trim the show down from the two hours and 21 minutes in its original format to John, just John, and a little bit of the back and forth that he and I had, but really this is just a distilled version of my favorite episode with one of my favorite people and so many of the great questions that came in. It really does stand out now that, sadly, while we have lost him, if you have an affinity for John, the person the one who has done so much charity work for Riley's Children's Hospital and countless other folks, or as the driver. This is just a beautiful, beautiful window here from a few years ago of him getting a chance to talk about himself. And then I've also included at the end something that I trimmed out of the original recording because it's just the most perfect version of John 
He thanked us for being invited onto the show. <laughs> Are you kidding? This is John Andretti. And yet, in his most pure form, he was thankful for being the recipient of an inquiry to be on the show. Just, just a beautiful person. And so I hope that this little special feature here, trying to shorten and improve our interview from the Week in IndyCar a few years ago, is something you'll enjoy just being able to listen to John in, uh, in his fine form, his self-deprecating way. Some funny stories in there as well. One that's fantastic about his birthday and racing all over the world, doing so many incredible things and just reminding us that there is a love for motor racing and then there is a passion for driving. And John probably stands atop that list in both categories among just about every person I've met in the sport. So let's get going with the 2018 Weekend IndyCar episode with the late John Andretti, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. And I hope you really enjoy this beautiful, beautiful man. Welcome to the Week in IndyCar and the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. I am so incredibly pleased to have John Andretti as our guest co-host this week. John, you probably know as IndyCar driver, race-winning driver, uh, NASCAR, dragsters. I, I mean, it might be easier to just name the things you haven't driven, John. And also, more recently, you've, uh, you've come to be a very inspirational figure as well. Uh, with your Check It For and Ready campaign, trying to raise awareness for uh, men like myself, who I expect to get yelled at here in a moment because I've been slacking. How are you, my man? How are you doing? That's a, that's the one thing everyone's been asking. How's John doing? Well, I'm honored to be um, for you to ask me to be on the show. I I am, um, you know, I'm doing okay. It's um, I can't say that it hasn't been, uh, you know, eye-opening in a lot of things and. I think I knew about aspirin before I started all this and now, you know, sort of become not a medical expert. I was actually joking with a friend of mine the other day and said that if he wants to send his scans over, I can probably look at him. But um, <laughs> it's, you know, I'm, I've been so blessed in my, you know, throughout my career and, you know, i got a, a great family and I had so many good things happen to me that, you know, I mean, I, I've, and I've been around people that I consider to be, um, you know, the, the man of all men kind of thing. My dad, you know, A.J. Floyd, people like that that have been just broken in so many different pieces and and um, and they don't they don't complain. So I got no reason to complain. I'm, I'm very, you know, happy to be where I'm at. And I'm proud of what I've done. But, you know, I, I think that with the, the campaign thing to um, certainly wasn't one that I expected to start and and, um, and, and quite honestly, I've been humbled by the reaction of people that have gone and gotten colonoscopies and been checked. And, and I've actually even talked to a few people, I think, off the cliff that have revealed that they have cancer, too. Now, it's, um, you know, just because you have cancer doesn't mean, you know, you've, you've got a death warrant. Um, I'm stage four, um, but I'm 
they have learned about this too, Marshall, is that on stage 4A, which the worst you can get is stage 4B, so, you know, I still got a long way to go in my eyes, and, and, um, and so there, there's, there's just different levels, and so, um, medical science and doctors and all the people that have been so great to, to help me along, uh, you know, my future, I don't know what it is, but to me, it's, I'm still a long way off before, um, before I call it quits. And I think folks might love to hear that instead of being bundled up somewhere, uh, you know, to avoid the uh, the Midwest and Eastern cold and all that, uh, you're currently in a shop, uh, you know, arms deep, replacing a fuel bladder in a car. I mean, you're, uh, if we're talking about how you're dealt with cancer and how you're dealing with it now after you know hopefully being on the positive side of it instead of just coasting taking things easy and whatnot I love the fact that you are uh, still uh, up and doing the thing that you love that sustains you and it's also a family thing now with your son well absolutely I mean certainly family and friends and the fans uh, they've been really inspirational for me they've motivated me and in so many different ways and for me um, I feel the, the bad part about colon cancer is that colon cancer is preventable now you know unlike say breast cancer that's treatable colon cancer if they catch it early enough there's no issue and yet it's the number one it's number two killer in the nation and, and there's no reason for it and I feel really um, the hardest thing that I've had to deal with in all of this hasn't been the treatments and everything it's really been what i've done to the people around me in the sense that they um they're they're sort of fighting this battle with me and it's a battle that didn't need to be fought and so we're trying to get it out there so that people don't put themselves in the same position that i'm in and, and really put their family friends and associates everybody around them that cares about them in, in the same place that, that i've heard mine and so for me it's been about just getting out and doing what i always did and you know my wife is is really funny because she'll say, "I can't. Why do you why do you go out there and act like nothing's wrong, and then you come back here and and then I have to see I see the aftermath and you know and I said, well because I don't I don't want pity. I don't want people to to look at me and think cancer. I want them to you know look at me and see John and it's the same as it's always been. And so we've gone sprint car racing last year and and. You know, we haven't left off the throttle at all. I mean, there's certainly days that um, I vanish and nobody sees me, but then then I'm back. And so, you know, the, the thing that keeps you going is just don't sit still. You know, if you think about it and you and you contemplate on it, you you know, that's kind of what curls you up and, and burns you up and, and takes it away from you. So, I, like I said, I have a lot of life left in me, and, and this isn't going to slow me down. And, you know, well, I'm not saying it hasn't slowed me down, but it has slowed me down, but it's not going to stop me. <laughs> well, I'm going to throw out the first amen of this week's episode, Brother John, and I have a feeling there's going to be a few more coming. Um, oh, I appreciate that. We've got so many awesome questions that have come in from folks who uh, are just so uh, so looking forward to connecting with you. Well, let's uh, let's jump into... A lot of Q&A that we have here, and uh, I'll apologize up front. Um, 
John does have a real life and he does have things to do. And so I don't know if we're going to get to all of them, but uh, we're going to try and get to as many as possible. Uh, Daniel Kincaid asks the first question, and Daniel's usually really good at getting in with the first question each week. He says, John, outside of any family members, who, in your opinion, was the best driver you raced against at Indy in your early years? And then he also asks uh, same question outside of family members uh, when you came back in the 2000s. you should have yep folks will actually send us some ideas of who they think might have been uh, some of the uh, the greats that you raced against or uh, even teammates that uh, might have been pretty cool that you uh, measured up against. Let me, so. let me tell you a quick story um, if you don't mind. I, I, was at, I went to get to Indianapolis before I turned uh, 25 and I got the test the day before my birthday and then that, it was a two day test so the next day I came back and and they said, hey, there's gonna be a birthday party, and, and uh, Johnny Rutherford was testing at the time and all that, and, and they said, there's, there's gonna be a birthday party, and I'm thinking, hi, ah, you know, this is, this is pretty cool, you know, I'm in Indianapolis, I made it here before I was 25, and I got to run around the track in any car, and gonna be coming up to my first Indianapolis 500, and all that, you know, just all the excitement, and yet these guys are gonna throw me a birthday party. Well, those are, don't know um, do now is that Johnny Russell was born on March 12th which is the same day I was born on and they were celebrating his 50th birthday and it was my 25th and I walked into a party that I thought was going to be for me because I even heard that you know and I heard the whispering of John John was part of it and when I walked in, it was a big party for Johnny Rutherford, and nobody, nobody in the whole place even wished me a happy birthday. And I thought, well, that, I guess that only makes sense. I mean, it's Johnny Rutherford; he's a three-time Indianapolis 500 winner. Why would they? But it is my birthday too, and it's funny because if you ask Johnny Rutherford, what about Johnny Andretti? What's the first thing you think about Johnny Andretti? He'll he'll tell you that we're both born on March 12th, and I because I told him that story long afterwards and you know Johnny he never forgets anything no well I mean they did have a birthday party for John just you know kind of wasn't the uh the John you were hoping for but you know hey you know 50 that's an important number I hope he at least had a slice of cake or something well I was half his age anyway at that point so I was I was 
I was just happy to be there still, but I was a little disappointed. <laughs> well, Eric uh, Eric Franklin asks, uh, John, you've driven in a number of, of different series and categories in your career. What didn't you get to drive that you really wanted to? <laughs> I was scheduled to drive a, a hydroplane, unlimited hydroplane. And uh, it was one of our team sponsors. It was P plus and it was, and I just thought that that would be so cool to do something like that. Uh, and it was going to happen and I was, and then all of a sudden one of those contractual things where I was going to kind of quietly go off and do it, but the sponsor started talking about it more and, and it got to the team owner. And so he put a mix to it and I just, I just thought that would have been a lot of fun. My uncle has a, uh, a hydroplane up at his lake, and we got to drive it, and it was one of those, of course, at, I always said about the Andretti family that he who gets her last wins because it's kind of like we just take ourselves out because we, we want to beat the other one. And it really doesn't matter who else is there just as long as you beat the other family member. And um, But the hydroplane was... Something that you you got to be on your game and on the lake and and it was a lot of fun to drive. So when I was going to get the opportunity to drive the unlimited, I thought that would be that'd be something really special and certainly differentiate myself from everybody else. That's for sure. Well, we've got a question or two coming up in just a little bit about some of the other fun things. I don't want to call them oddities, but if we think of what the things that were your primary you know areas of your career, maybe they. Uh, they stood out as a little bit of strange. We'll get to those in just a little bit. Uh, Andy Bauer asks an interesting question. Uh, he says, if not for his unfortunate accidents, uh, do you think your father would have made it to the Indy 500 as a driver? I think that for me, obviously, yes. My father is the, the ultimate person to me anyway. But on the other side, to talk, to hear other people talk about it when some people did see him race, and then also you know, my uncle, those are the people that really tell you. And, and obviously he had a, a lot of skill, and, and yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. At those days, the fact that my dad's even here is, is amazing. The fact that any of these drivers, thinking of that back in that era, that are here, is pretty amazing, but but he went through some tough uh, tough accidents, and, and certainly yeah, they, um, what happens when you get hurt is it sets you it sets you back in time, and and as you recover, and even my son found that out, and he, he didn't think getting hurt was a big deal until he had to sit out, and then he thought it was a real big deal, mm. and and I think that that's that's all part. Unfortunately, that's part of it. I'm I'm obviously glad my dad's here and. He was hurt very young uh, the first time, and who knows? I mean, where where things have, would have changed if they would have ran parallel careers, um, it, it would have been fun to see. And but I'm absolutely sure that Indianapolis would have been part of his resume. Joel Swaim asks something that I think might be inspired by maybe the awesome Window World Petty esque 
uh, Indy 500 liveries that you had. And frankly, brother, you've driven a lot of cars with just, you know, from Pennzoil to the uh, Porsche Indy cars to you name it. You've driven a lot of cars that were just flat out beautiful. But Joel asks uh, a couple questions on liveries. I'll try and condense them here. But uh, in essence, he's saying, you know, he's seen a lot of big teams with some rather subpar uh, liveries. Um, do you think having a really good livery is something that will, you know, just automatically bring attention to a program? Or do you think, uh, you know, just a, a pretty looking car isn't enough to uh, generate interest for a team or bring in more sponsors? Well, I think that, I think obviously, I think delivery is important on a race car. It's the character of the car. It's the thing that designates it from one car to another. So, uh, obviously, we didn't create that livery. That was something that was already created. Matter of fact, 2011 was uh, uh, an exact copy almost of the Gordon Johncock yep. uh, winning car. So, it's, I think that you look at over time, and for us, what we were trying to do is set back into time because that was the start of the centennial era of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and we wanted to bring back, I'm a big history. I love the, uh, not history in general, trust me, I'm not that smart, <laughs> but when it comes to motorsports, I love our history and where we've come from and how we've gotten to here, and it's not any one individual, it's, it's some very key individuals, but then and it's not just drivers, it's owners, it's it's every it's manufacturers. But to look at it and say we can draw back to that. I mean, for example, even the race day I wore an all white uniform because that's what they used to wear. And everybody just wore white because that was the only thing that that was even close to being flame retardant and they had to dip it in that in Nomex and all that other things to, to even make it that and I think half of them they weren't flame retardant to begin with, but to me, it was a throwback and, and sort of respecting the history of the Speedway and, and being a part of that. And Window World has always been a great supporter of that. For example, I'm obviously neither one of those colors are Window World colors. Sure. But we we brought in Richard Petty, who uh, I consider a very close friend and, and have it, uh, an infinite amount of respect for for him to come to Indianapolis it was funny the whole reason that even started is when I came back to Indianapolis and I think it was 06 was Panther I got a call from Bobby Loomis who was working for Petty Enterprise at the time and he said hey it's great to see you qualify for the 500 I know that means a lot to you and we talked a little bit and I said why don't you guys come up and he said I'll call you right back and he called me back and not only did Richard want to come, but Dale Inman wanted to come. Wow. And of course, Robbie came and, and Brian Moffat, who's the president of Penske, uh, sorry, Petty Enterprises, they all, they all wanted to come. So IndyCar took care of them, got the credentials, they helicoptered in, they, they met him with it. And, and I think the king was thinking that, I don't know if I'm really going to be that welcome coming. And of course, race fans love racers. And so he got the warmest reception, and and I said, would you ever want to come back and do this with me together? And and that's that's what kindled that. And so it's like I said, I've had to do, I got to do a lot of great things and a lot of cool things. And to me, yeah, that was 
that was really special. And part of it was the, the petty colors and bringing them to Indianapolis on an Indy car was, it was unique. I'd been there in stock car and petty colors, might as well do it in an Indy car. And like I said, again, thanks to Window World and, and Indy Autosport and Dennis Reinbull for making Richard part of the, the programs that I did. And, and it was exciting, but I do think delivery is important. And I do think it, you know, if you, if you look back over the years and you think about it, I mean, you think about like Mario, you think about the John Player Lotus, or you think about the Viceroy dirt car. And it's, it's the race car, but it's, it's, it's the scheme on it. If you, if you, if, you, if it was ugly, paint scheme, it, the car can only be so beautiful. You know, they're all, as my dad said, they're all good looking in victory lane, but they're better looking if they, in the black and gold and, and the bike, and my favorite car ever is the Viceroy Jim Dirt car with the double FR cams and stuff. So, wow. so yeah, and, and those things I think are really special. And I didn't even know what Viceroy was. It, I probably was <laughs> 35 years old before I even knew that Viceroy was even a cigarette, you know? So it's, it's one of those things I think it, it was all about the, the paint scheme. So, John, the uh, the next question comes from Robbie Bergren. I absolutely love this because this is something I just love to hear you speak about at all times. So, John, can you compare how the 1990 Porsche IndyCar uh, performed and drove in comparison to your 1991 Lola that you uh, drove to victory first time out with Jim Hall? Porsche. The, the Porsche Indy car was designed by Glenn Coppock and Tino Belli, and it was through March, uh, March Engineering. And so they had Taylor and I fly over Europe to sit in this race car, and I thought, well, what are we, we going to sit in? They haven't built it yet. And what it was was a complete wooden mock-up of the Indy car, and it was wooden gear lever, wooden steering, and you think they put a regular steering wheel? No, it was a wooden steering wheel. Everything <laughs> really? was, was, yeah, it was completely made out of wood. And what they wanted to do is the car was so small that they wanted to get the bulkhead right. The bulkheads in the car, which are the structural parts of the car, and to make sure that our legs would fit inside those bulkheads. And so, Tail could not make it there at the time that I made it there. And so, and he was, we were supposed to be there at the same time anyway, scheduling conflicts and things. And so I set the bulkheads, he came, he moved them. And so for the rest of the year, I, Teo, Teo and I were, are not built the same, we're about the same height, but we're totally different. I got longer legs, he's got a longer body. And so uh, my, I ended up with bloody knees the rest of the year. But oh. anyway, besides that. But it, it was one of the, it certainly was job security. There wasn't very many people in, in the paddock or probably in racing in general that could fit in those cars. And literally my seat, my entire seat was a, a black quarter inch thin pad that I just sat on. It's, it, it wasn't even the bottom of the car, it was towards the front. And I even have the picture of the Porsche Indy car cockpit because it always amazed me as how, just how small that was. and and how tight it was, but the turbo was in front of the engine, the gears were in front of the transmission. It was a, it was a very complicated car. It was sort of ahead of its time in a lot of ways. 
and and I actually like driving it. Uh, the thing is, is that that car was going to be completely carbon. Yes. And and CART at the time said they changed at the last minute. They had owners, some owners complaining, I guess, and they changed it to to still be aluminum honeycomb on the bottom for safety purposes, which. As we know in today's terms, that would be ridiculous. But and so until Denver, we didn't have a car that was even down to the minimum weight, which Tail ended up sitting on the pole because he got the first one. Mine came at Nazareth, which was either the last or second last race of the year. So, um, but on the big ovals like Indianapolis and, and things like that, or the weight wasn't as big of an issue, and it it drove really well. I, yeah, I gotta understand that it was it was a completely unique design and quite honestly when I went out in Indianapolis and drove the car for the first time uh, it, it drove it drove okay and then my my engineer uh, actually um, he came up with the idea that he was going to change the Ackerman and that's what he did and so there's little changes that you wouldn't think would be a big deal, but we actually changed that, and the car really lit up, and Tao liked it better, and so wow. that really, you know, it was little things like that, and it was, and that was fun, because the car wasn't like anything else there. Nobody could look at us, we couldn't look at anybody else, and our crew guys, because the car was so difficult to work on, they were working basically 24 hours, almost a day, and one of the stories is that they were going back to the hotel simply to take a shower and then come back to the racetrack and literally everybody was asleep in the van and the the driver of the van somebody had to wake him they were sitting at a stoplight and and everybody in the van was asleep so man they so to tell you the difference between the night the the lola and and the porsche was definitely the parts availability and for the team guys to be able to work on it. And from a driver standpoint, I think that the Lola was a car that we knew what everybody else had. And, and by the time you get to Indianapolis, when you start the year, everybody has about the same thing. But at that time, it was pretty open. And so you would see some of the more developed teams, they would come with developed pieces and they would have different rockers and different um, different suspension geometry and different things. and and certainly it became a, a race away from the racetrack as, as racing motorsports has always been. And, but that's not happening today, but it was back then. And and so it was sometimes difficult to keep up with somebody. You could run with them at the first part of the year, and then by the time you got to Indianapolis, uh, or past Indianapolis, it was, it was pretty much you were running, if you didn't change, you were running something that most people weren't running. So where the Porsche was, unique from day one and and um, I I liked it I thought it was because it was so unique and be, because it was Foster's was coming in and kind of a cool beer can it, it's almost like a you know it's like a pony cake almost yep. when you get one of those things <laughs> and it, it, I don't drink beer that fast and so I mean the thing would get warm before you'd even get halfway done with it but it you know in Quaker State and all the people it was just a cool car you know, and, and it was unique. And so I was very, very, very lucky to get that opportunity. It came a call from Derek Walker, sort of almost 
because they were going to a two-car program, and I had won the Porsche North American Cup, and and they gave me the opportunity, and I thought I was I was on top of the world to, to get to drive for such a, a high-quality team because it was basically Al Holbert's team that that we ran with, and so really, really good people. So I know that you had a, a chassis that was heavier than optimal for most of the year. What uh, what do you recall, John, at least from the early days with that turbo experiment uh, in front of the engine? I mean, you under, I think most people understand the reason why. It's, it's a big amount of weight, so if you can try and centralize that, it should improve the balance of the car and also the... Uh, the distance of the air charge to the intake plenum was, you know, the thing was sitting right in front of the plenum, um, you know, and also trying to move weight more centralized with the gear cluster. It all sounds perfect. You know, these are all things that sound like on paper, uh, the car should have been a world beater, but what do you remember at least, you know, those initial street races or road races from a balance standpoint, did those uh, theoretical improvements uh, translate into what you felt in the steering wheel. I, I think Tail proved it when that it was it was a very high quality car and it was it was probably ahead of its time and when he got the car and Tail's unbelievably quick anyway, but we went to Denver and, and he sat on the pole because that was the first time he had been at, at the weight and I think I was seventh or something on the grid. And you look at it, and I mean, we had the Porsche engine, which was different than everybody else, and so it drove different than, than other cars. There were a lot of things to it, but I can tell you that, that that exhaust being right by the fuel buck eye, that I told my fueler at the start of the year, I said, I just want to tell you one thing, that if, if you catch, if this thing catches fire and you, port the, and you point that fuel hose at me, if I survive, you're going to be really disappointed. <laughs> so... <laughs> Don't point that thing at me. I don't care who you point, where you point it, but just don't point it at me because it's going to take me a while to get out of this thing. And so, and so they had a big shield, and Derek Walker was—he he was very conscious of that too. And they made a big shield for it, and they did all kinds of things. And fortunately, we never, never had a mishap. But uh, for safety's sake, it, it needed to be somewhere else. And but, um, but yeah, I think the car was the car was something very special. But again, if I saw it recently at the Indianapolis International Airport because every now and then they, they get a car from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, a different car, and, and right now they have the Red 5 sitting in there from um, from Newman Haas, but they had the, the Porsche Indy car in there, and, and uh, it brought back a lot of special memories. Of course, people are looking at it, and I think they're just seeing the skin of it, and to me, I, uh, it brought back a lot of great memories. So the car is beautiful, first of all. I thought it just looked amazing. I love the uh, look of the 89 March as well in the, uh, the green and white Quaker State colors, but 90 with the uh, the Foster's colors. Beautiful to look at. And, yeah, the motor, I just remember that it was it was very strong. Um, but, it was know. indestructible, I tell you. We would, <laughs> we, would, we would just beat it to death, and the thing, you, you didn't hurt it. That was for sure. It was a... <laughs> It was a reliable piece. Yeah, just there's so many other elements of the car that were you know, radical for that time. That you know, a, a radical concept either lights the world afire, it's its first, you know, right out of the box, and, and resets the standard, 
or you spend some time having to learn it and figure it out and you know make sense out of it before it can get you uh, to where you want it to be. It's funny too, uh, just on a personal note, that was the first big job opportunity I had at uh, Portland that year in 1990. The, uh, the chief mechanic on the, uh, the SCCA sports car team I worked for, uh, we were there, I think, support race for the, the cart weekend. And he was friends, with, not with Derek, but uh, with, with one of Derek's managers. And they were looking for mechanics to uh, work on the backup cars, work on the T cars. And uh, was told that there was a $30,000 a year job awaiting me if, uh, if I wanted to take it. And I didn't. I regret it in hindsight, uh, saying, I guess I probably wouldn't be doing this today had I taken that, but um, I, I've thought about that many times, how uh, you guys could have picked up a fairly crappy mechanic by the name of me uh, halfway through the season, and then of course the whole thing went away at the end of the year, so it would have been a really bad career move by me, but nonetheless, I was just enamored by those cars, and uh, like you when I saw it in the uh, Indy airport, it was like... Hi, old friend. So great to see you. Honestly, if if they had not changed the rule, I think the car would have been tough to beat because we would have been, we really got on our hind legs. Actually, we started the season with the 89 car because the 90 wasn't even ready then at the start of the season. And, and so um, the first time we even got it on track was at Indianapolis. So I think that that just put us on a hind foot and, and sort of set out the way the season was going to be where we were going to just be playing catch-up instead of sort of already there. And, but that's what happens. You know, I mean, competitors are, are they, that's the one thing about competitors, they're going to take care of themselves first, and, and you expect that. I mean, everybody does it. It's just, um, it's not it's not on human nature. It's what you should do because you're trying to beat everybody, and and the objective is not how you do it, um, other than the fact that you should do it legally, but um, but the fact that you do it, and that's what's in, that's why they have races. Next question, John, comes from Brian Cohn, who's a pretty excellent fellow. It says, as a uh, fellow colon cancer survivor, he says he's had a clean bill of health since November 2016. He's curious how you dealt with the treatments, what tricks you might have used, what or who inspired you, if any, now that things seem to be going in the right direction, and uh, also wonders what you want to do in life that you haven't, because he's found that having future goals really made a big difference in uh, getting through his own colon cancer. Well, uh, certainly uh, I don't know that I have any tricks. I think that as when you're going through uh, the biggest the biggest element in in being treated for cancer is chemotherapy. That's the that's the thing that plays so many different tricks on so many different people. As a matter of people, as a matter of fact, I I told my oncologist I have I had two, and actually one of them retired, and now I have a new one. But I had I was getting treatments in Indianapolis and in North Carolina because of my travel schedule and and. I told them, I said, really, you need to go through about three treatments because you telling me what I should be feeling and what I shouldn't be feeling, you're, 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 it's insulting. Mm. And so, and really they didn't, they didn't do that, but 
But in a way, they would do it because they say, well, you shouldn't be, that shouldn't be part of it. Well, the human body has got to be a pretty complex thing, I would think. And you're putting this poison in it. And so I think that when you go on the internet, then you start finding out that other people are struggling with the same thing. And what was really odd is that I had six treatments uh, into May, and then they found the, the cancer in my liver in April. In April, and they found it because, ironically, I had a lot of pain, and and they said, "Well, you shouldn't be having any pain." Well, okay, but huh, I'm sorry, I am. And so they started scanning me, and then they ended up doing a biopsy, and certainly that's where it was. And and that really wasn't what was causing the pain; it was something else. But the point is, is that after I had surgery, they took me off chemo to do the surgery on my liver. They removed my spleen. They removed my gallbladder, and and um, and when I got back to getting back on chemotherapy uh, for the next six treatments, which they were three-day treatments every two weeks, and so I, I had totally different. I, I had some of the same, uh, you know, things happening to me, but I also had a whole some totally different things. For example, I started losing my hair the first six treatments and I didn't lose any hair the last six treatments mm. so it was just it's just really odd how things that are even obvious like that and then I had other issues and and I'm actually fighting through some things right now that that are because it doesn't the minute they stop it it just doesn't go out of your body and then all of a sudden you feel great and everything's wonderful and so there's some issues that have come up of late and so talking to and seeing what other people have done and, and some of the battles those people fight. So, so I'm doing that now and it, it's just, I think it's a constant thing. And my sister had stage three breast cancer and I could lean on her and the things with her. My mom has uh, stage two breast cancer. So matter of fact, um, I went to the infusion center here in Indianapolis for one of my regular treatments. And as I'm checking in, somebody, in line was saying yeah saying my name and um and i'm like i recognize the voice i look down it's my mom and she's checking in because she's got to be there for mm. uh, a shot that she had to get and i thought you know what a horrible place to have a family reunion and um but it's it's i don't know what to to say to anybody because there's so many different things that happen to them. As a matter of fact somebody said well tell me all the side effects that you have and literally I don't think the oncologist would sit and listen long enough to, to hear all the things that and it would be different and it would and so it's a different kind of challenge that people face because you just you wake up and you know sometimes you don't know what you got until you get up and you, you get going and you find out oh, you know this is what I'm going to deal with today or I have these three things or whatever and so um, I have a lot of respect for people. I, I've apologized to my sister a thousand times because she went through, she's past her five-year mark, and so we're extremely happy. But when she went through it, I had no idea what she was, how, how much of a battle it was. And, and you know, so I have a lot of respect for people that have that have gone through it. And, and but there's no way to explain it. And, there's, and, and often there's no way to help um, to get through it. You just have to... I guess this sort of fight of your own individual way. As far as things left in life for me, um, 
the only thing I ever wanted to do and the only thing I ever want to do is I just want to, uh, I want to live long enough to see my kids um, get to get to the age that I can see where their lives, where their path has taken on and, and the things that they've done and, and their successes. That's, that's really, you know, all I care about. And, and, you know, for me personally, uh, I've, I've done more than any person should be allowed to do and and got blessed with doing what I'd love to do um, virtually almost every day of my life uh, after after I, when I went to college because when I was in high school I had to, I was working at a tire store and I was working for a plumbing company <laughs> and those, those weren't exactly my, my dream jobs but when I got to I actually got paid to drive race cars and, and do this thing that I have a passion for and um and wonderful family you know there's nothing less there, there's you're, you're gonna get greedy if you ask for anything more other than i i do want to i do want to get to that stage in my life so i can see that because i think my kids all of them all three of them have a great future in front of them well, we're gonna go ahead and throw in a giant second amen so far in this episode john um <laughs> Uh, I, I hope you you've known what it's been like to be a popular driver to have people who you know you were their favorite driver they want to get your autograph etc you, you know that experience I hope you have uh, been able to amid the pain and the, the discomfort uh, been able to enjoy the fact that a lot of folks now look to you as an inspiration uh, and as someone who you know, frankly if I had to say what's the most important thing John has done in his in his professional life, uh, it wouldn't be the race wins and the other stuff. It's a fact that you have uh, forced a lot of knuckleheads like me and others to say, "Hey, take this seriously. Live your you know live a long life uh, by learning from you know maybe something you never considered until you decided to speak out." And I can say that 100%. Until you know, I'm sitting in Indianapolis, and you're uh, in the media center, and you're talking to us uh, about this, I never occurred to me, never thought of it. So uh, again, thank you. Uh, let me be one of of hopefully thousands and thousands of men to thank you uh, for reminding us that we shouldn't just be dumb cavemen and go to the doctor and uh, get things done that you should. I can tell you that, the, and I really appreciate that, the, the checking of Furry Andretti wasn't anything other than so that people could connect with, so I can know what they were doing so that they could talk about that they were doing this. And, and it certainly, I think that it, it originally started, some people were, were embarrassed by the procedure, other ones were been told that it's the drinking the solution and all that. Well, I can tell you that the, the reverse side of it is way worse and not only that in today's treatment is so much easier than before because i know because my wife has been um getting colonoscopies for a long time and so it's because of something else but it's something where for me when i hear people for example the just yesterday i was flying up to indianapolis and i i get this more often than I would ever have expected but I was trying to bump up to an earlier flight and there was actually a pilot there that wasn't flying but he was trying to get he and his wife on this plane too that they were trying to get we were both 
asked him on, he said, and he, he recognized who I was, and, and he said, hey, I really want to thank you. He said, I went and got one, but you need to talk to her. And he put his wife right on the spot, and, <laughs> and, and she goes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to schedule it. I promise you. And, and he, you know, he thanked me for it. And to me, it's been those things that have been really, uh, you know, I've never sat here and wondered why, why did this happen to me? Um, because it's, it, it happens to a lot of people. And my point is, is that it doesn't happen to have to, this doesn't have to happen to any of us. If we can get in front of it. Now, part of it is, is that colonoscopies or their screen at 50 and above. And yet we hear of cancer now in 20, 30 year olds that that are being operated on for having stage four colon cancer. So there's a lot left to happen. There's a lot of road to cover yet. And But the people that are 50 and over, shame on them and shame on me for if you don't get one. When you're at least 50, the insurance company will pay for it. If you don't have insurance, there's there's organizations out there that will pay for colonoscopies. And actually, there's even other funding out there that you can get a colonoscopy for as little as $50 based on your income. So, I mean, there is there is not a reason not to have this done and and be in front of it and and never listen to your doctor in the sense that if, if he says, well, it's, do you have any symptoms or anything, this is the silent killer. This is the one that I had no idea that that I was in the stage that I was in, and I've been running hard, really hard, and it wasn't slowing me down at all. I would have never known had I not gotten a colonoscopy, and it was going by pure luck that I got it because my wife was in getting her, her colonoscopy, and I said, let's just schedule mine while we're here. And two weeks later, here we are so and that's that's the thing I want, I'm talking about and that's the thing that I think people are, are becoming aware of that hey I need to do this and I don't need to do it for me I need to do it for all the people around me and it's been great to, to get the response from everybody and, and you know what there's a very very high chance that you're there's going to be nothing there but my sister who's 40 one of my sisters is 42 she um she decided I'm going to just go get a colonoscopy because I'm not waiting. If I have to pay for it, I'm going to pay for it. I don't care. And she had six precancerous polyps. Jesus. Um, I mean, how important is that to me that that happened, you know, that, that she found this early and no issue. So I, I really appreciate just being able to have the opportunity, like on your, with so many people that, that follow you and, and to get to talk about it and, and, you know, people may talk about me being a part of this, but there's, yeah, I just don't want it to stop. I was really afraid that after May that people would quit, but they, they haven't. And that's been the thing that has given me so much even more motivation because I'm not trying, this is not a Johnny and Dre thing. This is about you and about people taking care of themselves and, and their families. So anyway, I, I just really appreciate that. And I'm glad you went and had it done and, and, um, and I just think it's really important that everybody really is aware of that. I've got mine coming up next month, so uh, I, I'm still uh, still one of the, the meatheads that hasn't, but uh, I am going uh, as part of my physical, and uh, this is going to be part of it, um, period. So, And that is thanks to you. And we're going to throw out the third amen with everything you've just shared, because while we're here 
talking about IndyCar racing and history and present and all the things we love. You know, th this kind of stuff to me is the thing. The, this is the stuff that's really awesome because it's real. It's not entertainment. It's not sport. It's um, you know, one of our beloved members of the sport uh, actually doing things that can help people uh, in their own lives outside of motor racing. Well, let's jump into uh, a couple of uh, questions here. This one, I uh, Kevin Pinkston asks great questions, and this is one that uh, I'm looking forward to. He says, John, can you share any favorite stories of your time with Jim Hall? And he says, most serious race fans know about his storied race cars, but don't really know about the man. Can you shed some light on our... Uh, Chaparral friend from Midland, Texas. <laughs> well, Jim Hall is an intense competitor, and and I didn't know that he had gotten so hurt, badly hurt in a race car in his career, and and certainly, um, you know, when I was around him, he struggled with that on pretty much a daily basis, where he damaged his legs and and all that. But he just a phenomenal guy as far as gathering people together. Uh, like I said, very, very intense, really motivated to be at the front. And the ironic thing about it is I went down to talk to to Mr. Hall about driving for him, and, and I said, all I want to know is where the yellow submarine is. And, <laughs> and he said, well, it's in the back here. And I said, can I, can I see it? And we're talking about my career. <laughs> and... and that to me was just one of those ultimate iconic vehicles of our oh. uh, of the history of motor racing. Oh, we just bow down and, whenever we see it. I mean, that that's amazing. Oh, so I I go back there and um, all these cars are jammed together and they're all these amazing cars that he's he's, he's been a part of the design of. He's done. He's built. He's engineered. It's. And in there sits the, the yellow submarine. And I said, if no matter what I do, if we can do anything or not, can I just sit in it? <laughs> and, uh, and so I went and sat in the car and that, that really made, uh, and I'll never forget that day. And that was something that, and we got, we got to know each other a little bit. We spent time together. I had a really, uh, I was the first car to ever get in the 19 second bracket at Phoenix. And this was when the track was uh, the old configuration, oh, yeah. which was, uh, was a whole lot harder to drive than it is today. The danger level the was, was it, serious. Yeah, one and two was dramatically different and, and um, really kind of, you know, you had, to, you had to tighten your belts for it. And, and um, I got caught in the, the air, the dirty air from Emerson, and I spun and I, and I went, actually went, put the gearbox through the wall and the steering wheel came I hit so hard backwards that the steering wheel came off and it broke the front of my helmet oh my goodness and, and so I, I I I didn't hurt myself in the sense other than the fact that I cut my legs up and because I came when I came back the seat broke and I actually skinned them along the bulkhead and so so we went to his house after that race between Phoenix and Long Beach, and and I went, they were, he and his wife Sandy were in the hot tub, and they said, Nancy, you guys come out, we were staying at his house, and 
you guys come out when you guys get changed and all that. And we went out, and I didn't even think anything about it. And I walked right in, stopped right in the hot tub. Well, I had these ugly looking legs that were they were kind of they were trying to heal, but they weren't really healing because it was pretty fresh. And and um, I couldn't understand why they got it right out of the hot tub. Oh. <laughs> and. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, I, I understand now. Sorry about that. And I, and I realized it, too, when I got, finally got in the water, and, um, my legs lit on fire. But um, but just a, he was, he, we, um, obviously, we had some success together, but he was somebody that, obviously, you could, you, you had to admire for his history and what he's, what he's accomplished and the things he's things he did and the fact that he got into IndyCar racing and, and Franz Beast was you know he was there and Franz you know everybody loves Franz oh yes and uh, you know so you go to Midland Texas though and you're you're testing at Big Springs Texas which is nothing but you know in the middle of the weeds and and uh, but you but we did learn a lot and that's where we ended up that's why we ended up winning Australia because we did so much testing over the winter and and getting ready and at those days I mean you had to have everything right in other words the gearboxes I mean you actually had to shift the cars then and 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 do and so you could break them and we did a lot of things and so it, he um, he's a big part of all obviously all that actually we would have been qualified better down there too because we we're really fast in practice but we broke a little throttle sensor in qualifying and, and so we had to kind of work our way up through and some good opportunities came our way and lo and behold we won and it was it was a great way to to kick off a relationship obviously with with him and and um but again a very intense guy and and um and i learned a lot from him i remember watching that race live at whatever crazy hour that it was surface paradise in 91 and just thought that was the coolest thing right here's john new team the Porsche thing was cool, but didn't you know quite work out the way that you wanted. You'd had some other good rides before in the series, not you know championship uh, grade opportunities, but just thought it was so cool to see Jim back, you back, Pennzoil colors, winning in that first race, um, and some of you know just the the footage, just frankly where they placed the. Uh, TV cameras at Surface Paradise and some of the shots of just, you know, almost like hurtling uh, over the, uh, the chicanes and such, you know, the chicanes that surfers are so, uh, you know, so amazing with the sequence of them back to back to back. It's just uh, that event always st stood out in my mind and just was so cool to watch you win that race. And, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty special times. Real quick about the end of that race. It's funny because if you remember the sun was coming down and it was it was late in the day even in Australia yep. and so and my final tear off when I pull off my final tear off it also took off my visor strip <laughs> and if you watch at the end of the race I mean it's very very hard to see matter of fact I think a lot of a lot of people were having problems with the sun and and I was no different I think the only difference was I was young and and um, didn't know any difference but it, if you look You'll see. I started the race with this visor strip, and at the end, it's gone. And that's that's what happened to it. <laughs> I don't need to see on a street course. Uh, 
Yeah, no, that that low sun there in the shadows too, with uh, the K wall and everything else. Yeah, it could get. Uh, I remember it was getting pretty dark in some sections of the track for sure. Let's see. Uh, Gay Bargenta asks or says, John, you've raced everything under the sun. So how about this? What's a favorite? What's your favorite street car that you've ever owned or driven? <laughs> Favorite street car that I've ever owned, or, um, well, I don't know. I mean, in, in today's world, they just keep getting so, so nice. I mean, in the, in the sense that they do everything, they do everything. I mean, they're they're higher. They have more stuff than any. Well, than than most racing series allow on them. You know, with um, the way they they manage all the control systems. So. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's that's really hard. I mean, I've had a lot of different cars in my life, but I, I guess um, I'm gonna have to go with my first car. You know, it was it was probably the most special car. It was my baby, and what was it? It was a 1976. It was a 1976 Monte Carlo. Ooh. It was, uh, red with <laughs> white Landau and white interior, and and that thing was. Be- it was. I kept it like pristine, and it was. It was my baby. Every night when I. Even when I, I actually, I lived with my uncle and and my cousin in Pennsylvania when I went to college. And every night, even though it was parked out in the driveway outside, I put my car cover on it and you know locked it on there. And, and it was it was my my sweetheart. Wow. Um, wish I still had it. I mean, you know, remember those? You know, Kale Yarbrough won the Daytona 500 with it. Oh, that yeah. was really cool. But you know, you you sat probably what would now be the back seat of most cars oh, yeah, because absolutely. it had a real long nose on it and but it was it was my baby that's 76 monte carlo that's some i mean that's one of those cars you, you stare at it too long you might get pregnant you gotta be careful it's just too cool too too cool uh let's see we've got a couple other really good ones here as we kind of uh wind things down a little bit john um Let's see. All right. Kitan Bombersbach, who uh, is always throwing in great questions each week. He says, when talking about Richard Petty, almost everything that's said pertains to his driving days, and deservedly so. Uh, what he would like to know is, what is Richard Petty the car owner like? The, um, the best guy that I think I've ever been around. Mm. I mean, just the guy you... The guy you see on the street is the guy you see in the back. The guy I uh, was there um, and on the horrific time when Adam passed away, and and he is just one of those magical kind of human beings that just um, he used to call me in his office, and we just sit and we talk about we talk a little bit about racing, but we talk about family, we talk about different things, and and he. Um, just a, such a special person. There was there was a couple of times. There was one time he called. Um, I'm in his office because I used to go to the race shop every week, and I drive from my house in Morrisville up to Randleman, North Carolina, and and be with the guys and and spend time. and And I'd see him, and we because he's at the shop. He was at the shop every day, and and he um, he brought me in one time, and he said, "Hey, John, I just wanna I just wanna give you this." Um, you work really hard, and and I want to show my appreciation. Well, he already he already pays me, you know, to cry for him. Yeah. So 
And I, I take, it's an envelope, and I assume it's a check, and I push it back across his desk, and I don't. I said, I, I don't work any different for, for any, any amount of money. Um, it's all the same to me. I just, you know, I want to be successful for, for me, for you, for everybody. And, and he pushed it back across. He goes, just make me happy and take this. And I took, I took the envelope and I pulled it closer and I said, and I picked it up and I said, if this will make you happy, I can make you ecstatic. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, no, I'll just be happy. You just, (laughs) and, um, but when I won Martinsville with him, he brought me in and he gave me a, not even contractually, just gave me a big bonus. My contract with him was maybe two pages long with some handwriting on it because you'd forget about, oh, we forgot about right doing this. And just real old school, real just purebred racer, just not, there's nothing, there's nothing that you see outside that you don't see behind door, the closed doors. And he just genuine, uh, he sees the real deal. And, and so forget, forget the fact again, that there's, there's, plenty of people that have won championships and won races and, and have put themselves in the record book. To me, you know, what they are off the racetrack and what they've done with that is more special to me because it tells you about the person and the things he's been, he's done with that to create opportunities for people, to help people, to do things is you would never know. And, but I do because I was there and just, uh, just somebody that you, you know, I have nothing, nothing but praise for and respect. And I'm just, why do people, people say, why do you, why'd you stay there? I, I left at one point in my career and it was, it was such a bad decision uh, that when I went back, there was just no way I was going to go again. And there were opportunities there, sure. And, but I just couldn't, I had too much respect for him and wanted to be a part of what he was doing that, you know, it was, it was about being part of the petty, petty success and trying to, to, you can never bring petty enterprises or petty racing or any of that back to the stature that it was because no, there is no race team that has, has ever accomplished the things that they accomplished. But, um, you could try, we could try to do things that would, would do those things and to win for him and and to carry him into victory lane because he was he was walking along pit road and I, and I was asking where the king was and they said he's on pit road and i said well the 43 can't go to victory lane without the king mm. and so he hopped on the door and we took him and drove him to victory lane so just uniquely special person and, and um anybody that's ever got to know him or be a, be around him knows that what I'm saying is the absolute truth. Let me follow this with a question of my own because we've had a great question about uh, what it's been like, you know, driving for Jim Hall for Richard Petty. Now, you <laughs> you stand out, John, as if you don't already know, as someone who has driven for more iconic people in the sport than most, uh, from the Granatellis to Jim Hall. AJ Foyt, uh, your cousin Michael, who's become, 
you know, after after his driving career, I mean, good Lord, you know, we go to India every year and you almost kind of want to half just hand him the Borg Warner trophy with how many times, you know, he's been winning it of late. Uh, again, in NASCAR with Richard and things there. I mean, I'm guessing that as someone who's always been very um, gracious and appreciative of the things that have, have come to you, I imagine that part of that is realizing, wow, uh, I've driven for a lot of people, but I've also driven, you know, I've driven for Super Techs, I've driven for the King. Um, you've been really fortunate in that way. Oh, you, you can't imagine. And the other thing, too, is when you drive for those those championship drivers that have become owners, they tell you nothing. They, you can go to them and say, hey, what about this and what about that? And, you know, they have so much knowledge and they can do so much and they're like, no, you got it. You got it. You know what you, you, you can, and, and every one of them was like that. And yet I drove for people that never drove a race car and they would, they would talk, they would tell me everything that I was doing <laughs> that I needed to do. And it was, and not everyone that was, that had driven, but I mean, it was really uniquely uh, apparent that, that that was happening. And, you know, and, AJ is my godfather, and to get to drive for him at Indianapolis the year that he retired and, and to do it the way we did, it was funny because I went out and I ran a few laps, and and he goes, don't tell anybody. He goes, um, because we want to be in the Sunday paper, and the Sunday paper's bigger, and so don't tell anybody you're going to drive for him. You know, I didn't know I was going to drive for you, I mean, until right now. And, uh, and he just... Uh, I really enjoyed it. He's, he's the one I drove for when I did the double. And and that's a whole other story, too, because he it, it was it was funny because at that time, Brian Herter was actually my teammate at, at Foyt Racing. And and, uh, and so when I left, I went to drive the stock car in California to qualify it, to practice and qualify it, and then come back overnight, qualify the Indy car for the Indianapolis 500, then go back that day, that evening, so I could race the stock car the next day. And and so when I came back, uh, AJ wouldn't let me in the car. And when I was gone, they changed everything on the race car because when I left, we, were, you know, we weren't struggling, but the car was not as good as it could be. And AJ was really good, actually really good with the car. It's amazing how good he was. And I have more stories about that, but I won't go into them. And so he wouldn't let me in the car, and, and and so I went back and got dressed. And as my car came through the qualifying line, I had not practiced it, but they changed everything on it, and I climbed in the car, and he goes, where are you going? I said, I'm just going to go qualify. And, uh, and it started to rain. And so we go back to the garage, and and we're talking about, well, if I leave, and he's, he, he's mad if I leave because now we don't have no shot at first day qualifying our first weekend and and I can't I have a commitment to go drive the stock car so I need to go and anyway at that time it cleared up and and he said well if your first lap is above 217 he goes I'm going to wave the green which is your warm-up lap and my first my warm-up lap was like 223 and so we ended up qualifying 10th quick and we and we probably could have qualified we had one of the quickest qualifying laps and we probably could have qualified on the front row had he let me practice, but the, I was going so much faster than we thought we would go that the car was just dragging the ground. It was bah, 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 bouncing, yeah. bouncing along the ground. 
And um, but it was just yeah, it was one of those things. And AJ, you just look at him, and everything was everything was great, you know. And and so and we always have had a great relationship. And I call him. I love to talk to him on the phone, and I'll call him every six weeks or so. And he always picks up, and if he doesn't pick up, he always calls me back. And um, another really special person. Yeah, how lucky am I to get to drive for those people? Like I said, just get to drive, but to get to do and work with the people I got to work with is has been amazing. Jordan Darwin says uh, you had a front row seat for the uh, Michael Andretti and Rick Mears duel at the end of the 1991 <laughs> Indy 500, uh, and since the, you know that was a great finish for you that day, he, he asks, "What do you remember from that duel?" Uh, I guess you know, kind of a front row seat almost. Well, I was a front row seat, and I was. I was basically, I was um, a lap down, and I was going to restart between Rick and Michael. And and it was one of those things where I did not, I don't want to be the reason for changing the outcome of a race. I mean, people have worked hard for it. And so you'll see that Michael goes around me right on the start, moved over and let, let him go by so they could do the fight. And it was... Uh, one heck of a battle. The thing is, I packed up because we were pulling away from everybody. They're racing the the death out of each other, yeah. and we're still pulling away from everybody. So I backed up a little bit away from them for two reasons. One is I didn't know what was gonna who I was gonna have to miss because I figured <laughs> somehow this is probably gonna end up a little bit ugly. It is the Indianapolis 500, and, and this is the biggest race in the world, you know. So. Everything's on everything's on hand, so I don't I don't blame whoever does what, but it's, I I did have that I was going to be the first car through, and uh, and the other thing too is I wanted to set the fastest lap of the race, and so I backed up and on the last lap of the race, uh, I did the major toe up behind them, and I set the exact same time that Ari Leindyke had set earlier in the race because he set it earlier in the race. He got the money for the fastest lap of the race, and it kind of made me mad. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, I get it. You know, I thought we should at least split the money because we did do the same lap time. But, but anyway, it was it was an amazing race to watch those those two go at it. Uh, and obviously, I mean, I, I have huge respect for Rick, but you, you know where my heart lies, and and, who, and Michael and I are extremely close, and. I'd have loved to have seen him pull that off. It was huge for the family, but but certainly deserving for him. So we have a uh, question here from Andrew C., which uh, I was hoping someone was going to ask about this. He said, what are John's memories or stories from when he tried out the NHRA? He said, I honestly don't remember uh, if he did a little bit in Top Fuel or Funny Car, and I think it was 93, but your... Uh, there's a point in time, my friend, where, you know, seemingly every week we're waiting to, to pick up on track or whatever magazine and find out that, okay, John's racing a submarine this week, and all right, next week uh, he's going to be in a roller derby. I mean, there was a point in time in your career where uh, anything from one wheel to a propeller to who knows, you were going to race the thing. But this uh, NHRA adventure of yours, tell us about it, because it's such a cool chapter of uh, everything you did. Well, that was that was a a unique year because basically I did I ran everything from go-karts to the Indy 500 to Daytona which I the factory jive team to 
Indianapolis 500 with with AJ to to the top fuel car to run my first NASCAR race and and who knows what else in between but oh yeah I set a land speed record on Bonneville soft flats and so for that you know I basically what happened is I just took a year off and said I'm just gonna I'm just gonna have fun I'm not gonna sign a contract with anybody I'm gonna be like a hired gun and I'm just gonna go week by week and I'm gonna decide where I'm gonna race and what weekends I'm gonna race and where I'm gonna race and and that's what I did and I, I, I mean not to sound spoiled or anything but that was it was it was great I got to drive a midget I got to you know I, I just did a little bit of everything because I had no nobody telling me what I can and can't do and and really it was a time that I was looking at IndyCar and saying that really IndyCar was was being dominated by a couple of the teams and and I knew that one one team had two family members on, the other one was already full of people, that there was not going to be a, a seat coming open for me. And, and I looked at it and said, you know, can I can I win here? I think so. Can I win a championship? I don't know. Probably not. I mean, because it's it's just that hard. And not only do you have to be good at driving, you got to – the equipment's important too. And so – not that I didn't have really good equipment and all that. It was just those little things make a difference. And so I think that I, I said, I'm just going to go have fun. And that's what I did. And when I'm with a top fuel dragster, and I actually went down to Texas to to drive, and I had to get licensed. And the way you do a licensing is you, you do this burnout, and then you do another burnout, and then they take the motor down. And then you do a burnout, and then you go 60 feet. And I'm like, by this time now, I'm getting really bored. My burnouts are really cool, but <laughs> I want to—I want to really kind of let the legs out on this thing. So I'm supposed to do a burnout and then go like 100 feet or 120 feet down the strip and then shut it off again. I just—I just run it all the way through, and um, I ran just underneath. At that time, 300 miles an hour was a big deal, and I ran just underneath 300 miles an hour, and and I, I mean they showed up and they're yelling at me and all this and I'm going whatever you know you can't you can't make me go back and not do it yeah it's done you know and ironically we ended up having blowing a motor and which is amazing to do in one of those cars because you blow a motor and you're going a couple hundred miles an hour I mean half track at that time to go 300 miles an hour you're doing 250 miles an hour at half track so in an eighth of a mile you're already almost there the rest of it's just you're sitting almost pushing the steering wheel trying to get it to go faster. Wow. And it, it just was one of those things where they actually had to use that time split to give me my NHRA license. And and my first run was the France Southern Nationals, and, and I'll never forget it. We, uh, we qualified. We didn't. We qualified in the back half of the field, and and when um, but I run like 290. 298.9 miles an hour and and things didn't always run on eight cylinders and things that just would have just run on eight cylinders I could have made a 300 mile an hour pass but anyway the so my first round was against Joe Amato who was a reigning champion yeah. and and I didn't realize that when you go through the, when you finish the run that there's little lights down further to tell you who won which lane won right and I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> no, no experienced drag racer. I'm just trying to drive a car down the strip. And 
and I, I went down and I didn't know who won, so I asked Joe Mata, I said, who won? Well, that was the wrong thing to do. And uh, he wasn't real happy, and I, I beat him, and the next round I beat Tommy Johnson Jr. And um, unfortunately, in the sem- semifinals, Mike Dunn beat me, and and uh, he went on win, win the event. But the night before, we were at a, uh, a special press thing, and it was a big dinner and all that, and they had Joe Mato, they had Kenny Bernstein, they had me, and those are the three I remember because they took us in alphabetic order. And so Joe Mato got up and spoke first, then I got up and spoke, and I said, you know what would really be interesting in drag racing is if you could go over there and squeeze the other guy off to get him to lift. It's, you know, <laughs> just trying to kind of make it a man versus man and who's braver, you know? And um, so Kenny Bernstein gets up, and Kenny Bernstein starts talking, and he goes, and by the way, Andre, stay in your own lane. Yeah. Oh, this. What I love about this man is, you know, we're not talking after five years. You're able. I mean, showing up kind of straight out of the box. You're knocking off, you know, the defending champ. And you know, I just remember th- this wasn't a token thing. This was you showing up and doing, you know, real drag racing and and performing uh, like you've been doing it your whole life. It was just, uh, it was so cool. It's funny because I went back. Last, I don't know, a couple of Februarys ago, probably three Februarys ago coming up, uh, to go out to Phoenix to go to the NHRA race. And it was all because I was I was putting together a, a program where we were raising, we were raising money for St. Jude. It was with Window World, and it, was, it had put me, taken me five years and of their, them, you know, investing and me doing the work and, and being a part of it and them helping. And, we ended up raising over a million dollars in one night for St. Jude, which was really cool. But wow. but I was out there talking to different people about it, and people came up the next day, and like because I did the whole three days there, and it was really nice. Don Schumacher, um, you know, let me be part of what they were doing, and I sat in the Caps Funny car, and you know, I just just really super nice people, and and the next day people were there was um, a couple people that showed up with the Johnny Andretti Taco Bell shirt on from the drag racing day where they had these shirts and I don't even know how they were still in one piece, you know, because that was, oh my gosh, that was when Ben Hurt was racing. So, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was really, it was really fun because it was like they had, they had, you know, race fans are amazing because they're, they remember everything. The true race fan just knows where you've been, what you've done. And, and they're, they're just a part, they're like a part of your life. And, and that was, that was really, that, that made me feel great because I was at a drag race and yeah, there's people that knew me, um, but you know, all of a sudden there were people that were going, starting to talk about the drag racing and all that and then they cornered me and, and it was, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was totally, totally unexpected, but, um, you know, I mean, yeah, you have to love doing it and, and that was, that was truly, I mean, I really like to get my son in a top fuel car uh, just so that he could experience it because I think that getting to do a little bit of everything is one of the things that I'm most grateful for. Well, it might not be in, in Michael's Andretti Autosport family, but now uh, we at least know we uh, we can walk over to the Ray Hall tent and uh, Graham might have a connection or two to help make that happen for you. So, uh, uh, well, well, he, his wife's 
his wife's out there winning races. I mean, yeah. she's better than he is. We tell him that every chance we get. You know, you're 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 you know you're you're not even the cleanup hitter in your own household. You know, you're you're the lead off batter here, man. Um, but yeah, that's pretty pretty I really awesome. I like Rand, but I'll tell you, Courtney's a whole lot better looking. Yeah, I mean, granted, I'm, I can't really speak, you know, uh, I apologize when folks have to look at me, but, all right, so we got uh, two or three questions left here, and this this actually, it's perfect, because it piggybacks off of uh, a topic you just mentioned, and thanks for asking this, Ben. Ben Cohen says, first, I'd like to thank John for all he's done for the Raleigh Hospital, uh, the, the Children's Hospital in Indy, and he said, would you mind explaining how you became so passionate for the mission of supporting uh, the Riley Children's Hospital and uh, what it's been like for you to see how large the Race for Riley program has become. I'll tell you, it's, um, I'll, I'll make this, I know I haven't made anything quick, but I will make this as quick as I can because we're going into our 22nd year now. But we, way back when I was on a radio show, weekly radio show, and we uh, always tried to raise money for Riley, but we ended up doing a match race between me and the producer of the show. He used to give me a hard time, and we'd heckle each other, and now we were going to go racing. And so we raised a little bit of money, and we decided absolutely going to raise it for Riley Hospital. And the reason why is I had a brother that, an older brother that was in a go-kart racing accident and uh, hurt himself pretty pretty significantly, and they... and my parents took him straight to Riley. My sister then, my older sister, who, um, she was in a car accident when she was a senior in high school on the way to school function, and and uh, it was a really serious car accident, and my father drove up on the accident seat by by pure coincidence, and, um, and he made them take her to Riley Hospital. And so with that passion for my family, I knew that there had to be something special about this hospital and what they did and how they fixed my brother and my sister and and so um and actually jared my son is a riley kid as well um you know so for us and much later obviously but we we did that and that's where my passion's been for riley hospital it's here in indianapolis it's um it's a great hospital they do wonderful things um it's supported heavily by the simons and um who on all the malls and things and so it's just, um, it's a wonderful institution to be able to, the, the minute you go into any of these children's hospitals, you're, you're sold that you need to do something. And if you, if somebody out there has never done that and you get the opportunity, you need to do it because it's just amazing. You meet these, these children that are so inspirational, so powerful and so inspiring that when you leave, you never had a bad day in your life honestly because the challenges that they're facing not only with them but their families and everything you, you would think that that when you're talking to them they, they could be having a bad and they they will not show it they will just battle right through it and and it, it just changes it changes your whole life it changes the way you think about things and and for me it's it's no different and we're lucky we have Kroger as a, a big supporter which is you know, huge grocer, people yeah. in Kroger, they might know them different ways in different places, but they support us, and Window World is the border, and there's a lot of corporations that, that come around and they support it, but the majority of money comes from the Kroger stores, and people just donate a dollar 
five dollars at a time, and it's it's called the the Croker Race for Riley, and it's it's every year, and we have a go kart race. It started a little go kart race, now it's a dinner, and it's they have barbecues, they have dances, they have they raise money from all over, and it, it it's just an amazing. As a matter of fact, even Mike Hardy, and uh, we talked about him earlier. He he said, you know, I want to do something. I'm going to start a golf tournament. We're gonna we're gonna give the money to we're gonna make a, a donation to Riley Hospital and through the race for Riley, and that's what he did. And so for the last two years, he, he started this. He heard he heard knew that I was doing it. We we become really good friends, and and I mean he he's 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 somebody that's given back a lot to the Indiana community as well. The people don't, people are gonna learn more and more about him and, and realize what. You know what an individual he is that he's just not some guy out there that you know is just deciding he wants to go racing he does so many other things and for the community to help it. and so but anyway it's that's where my inspiration has come to to do things it's it came through my my parents and then you know for my siblings and then just being the minute you go there you just knew that you you needed to do something and we don't we raised over five hundred thousand dollars this year in the in the race for Riley, and they see over three hundred thousand kids a year. So you can imagine that we're not we're we're we're, we're making such a small dent, but we're trying to do something and we're trying to help the best we can. And and every year it just keeps getting bigger. So we're proud of it, but it's um. Now Jared had to substitute for me this year in the go kart race, so he got to bang around with the press and doing all kinds of things. So we'll have to get you out there, Marshall, and and um, get you out there racing with us and have a good time because it's it's a blast. And we have a policy that if you're not going to have a good time, don't show up for for any of our events because all we are we're just we're just there to have a good time, raise money for these kids and and um, support them. And actually, even Andretti Autosport, they have a we call it racing Riley kids and. And Michael's been so kind to open up the, the race shop, and we've been doing this probably for the last six, eight years, uh, where he hosts a lunch, and we bring in uh, about 10 families, and he comes down, and he visits with the kids, and he talks to them, and, and it, it's their back. They get to come in the Andretti Autosport. They have lunch in the race shop, mm. and all the, all the guys come over. They spend, you know, and they get to see him. One time we had kids on wheelchairs and they rolled up into the truck and, you know, looked at them on the ramp and they rolled up inside the truck. And, and then all of a sudden they came firing out and jumping out off the ramp. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do here? <laughs> kids are, you know, they, but they're, they're they're just amazing. So, um, you know, it's, it's I don't do, obviously, it's, it's something that is, is easy for me to do because I get so much more out of it than I've ever put into it because uh, of what those kids, you know, do and, and how much I mean. And, and because we've been doing it so long, there's there's kids that have come up, that have come up to me and one a couple of years ago said, I just wanted to come meet you because they said you helped me when I was a baby and now he's a, a teenager. And oh. and that that was just, I was, all of a sudden it just hit me put on perspective of how long we've been doing it. And, you know the, the amount of kids that we've seen and, and been a part of. We have a party at the hospital, and that's a private party. It's only for the, the patients and their families, and we do a lot of cool things. And it's just it's just a really really fun time. And, and by the way, before we were talking about Graham and Gray, I'll just say so you know Graham texted me today to ask me how I was doing. Mm. I mean, how good a guy is that? <laughs> well, he's um, 
I've mentioned this before. I don't know if I've mentioned it on uh, the Week in IndyCar podcast, but Graham catches hell on social media somewhat frequently. I guess uh, a lot like uh, another family member of yours, Marco Andretti. Um, There are a lot of folks who um, don't need much of a reason to uh, say some unpleasant things uh, about Marco or Graham. And, you know, we'll also be honest, Graham sometimes does a good job of sticking his foot in his mouth. But I can tell you that if you forget all of that, because social media just doesn't matter, uh, Graham is the guy who immediately was starting to organize something to uh, the biggest thing, the biggest benefit for Susie Weldon and Dan Weldon's sons after he was killed. And, I mean, was just transformational in helping uh, there when Justin Wilson died. Uh, Graham was, you know, the first in terms of organizing a a charity drive, money, eBay, what can we do? Um, So, and he doesn't seek praise for that, uh, but I can tell you that Graham, just by being himself, without anyone having to push or suggest, I would guess, uh, I mean, I think I know for a fact, if you put the numbers together, uh, through his efforts directly, more than a million dollars combined have been raised for Julia Wilson and her girls and Susie Weldon and uh, their sons. Um, you know, whatever it is that you might, uh, that might be easy to pick on Graham about, um, you know, I can't speak on that, but I can tell you. Uh, That is a guy whose heart is absolutely in the right place, and it's not a surprise that he's checking in on you privately, because that's just kind of what the guy does. So um, we love giving him crap, because it's kind of fun to wind him up, but uh, he gives as good as he gets, and uh, not a surprise to hear that he's checking in on on you as well. You mentioned Marco. Marco does the same thing. You know, of course he's family, but people don't know him either, and he's... He's a lot like Michael, where people just don't know. They think that there's they're one thing, and and when you get with them, they're they're like the best people. You know, Michael, and there's the, probably the maybe the two most misunderstood people that I've ever been around. Where people, oh, they do this and they do. This. You guys don't even know them. I know them, and they're nothing like that. That's just they're part of their competitive nature. Is part of how they. They come out of the car and different things, and but it's nothing like them. They have, I mean, you look at what Michael did last year and with the checkup for Andretti. I mean, he's running in the car, and there's he doesn't have to do that. I mean, that was it. It, it almost brought me to my knees to 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 think that my cousin would would do something like that, you know, because it was so special. Marco, he always, how you doing, Mario? You know, he's calling me. So, I mean, there's. This, this fraternity that we have is amazingly tight. And when somebody needs something, they are there for them. doesn't matter what, what water's gone under that bridge. Everybody is there for, for everybody. And that, that's what I love most about this, uh, this motorsports fraternity family. This question, John, I'll, I'll try and answer a little bit, but... Um maybe from the engineer's perspective, but I think you as a driver can certainly offer a far more intelligent answer. So Greg Sikor asks, 
or says quite often we hear drivers referencing driving styles in regards to uh, adapting to one specific style or another at certain tracks maybe he said can you compare and contrast what the characteristics of different driving styles are at least for me John and how I hear that question uh, I'm just drawn immediately to those who would prefer either a neutral handling car uh, one that has oversteer or one that has understeer uh, does that sound like what Greg is asking and if so maybe you can explain uh, a driving style that might suit those three uh, predominant handling characteristics yeah I think that first of all I think the new Indy car is beautiful I mean I, I think the other compared to the other Indy car the previous years I love the new look, so I'm I'm really excited about it. But um, regardless of how they sound, <laughs> they just they just look really really racy and really awesome. They look like an indie car again to me. And but as far as driving styles, um, when I worked with Andretti Autosport, they they actually uh, they they used, they used the term driver coach. It's pretty hard to coach championship drivers, but basically it was to go out and look at segments and help so that they could improve in segments where they might be not the quickest. And so, you know, I would I would go out and venture around the track and they would, the engineers would actually pick the places that I would be and I'd find a strategic place and we'd, we would talk about it. But you could see certain drivers within the team where there's a driver within this, within the Andretti Autosport, he, he hates it if he doesn't feel the front tires. If it, if the car is not driving off the front end, he doesn't he doesn't care about anything behind him. All he cares about is that he can feel the front tires and that he can drive the car with the wheel and with the throttle. And you'll see him perform miracles of saves and constantly through even just one corner, just to just to carry the speed. And and it's all the car is is almost sometimes too loose and does and actually hurts his speed because he. He just doesn't want, he can't stand any understeer at all. And then we have other drivers that they wanted to feel, they wanted to have this, what's termed as a secure back. They wanted to feel the back end. And that's so they always knew that no matter how they, they would flick the car into the corner, that they would have that back underneath them. And that that's two totally contrasting driving styles, or the feel that they wanted out of the car. And you would see drivers adapt the, the drivers that are, are phenomenal are the drivers that will adapt and say, look, if that's going to be quicker, then I'm going to I'm going to switch, and I'll, I can actually change my driving style a little bit. So I'll adapt to that because it's quicker. I need to learn how to how to drive with that kind of condition so that I can be a quicker driver. And they'll actually you'll see them theoretically they'll go out there during the practice session and they'll change their their own driving style. So there are some that. They're baked in, and it's got to be this way, and that's that's what's going to make me fast. And they're both equally quick drivers, but the one that can adapt to everything is the guy that obviously throughout a race, you're going to be thrown a handful of conditions where the track picks up grip, it loses grip. There's other things, uh, the, the the tires that they put on don't don't feel the same as the ones they took off. It's this or that, you know, whatever. And that adaptability is is sometimes what separates, only because 
they can they can change that style to whatever their car is doing. Now they they have a lot of stuff in, in, inside the car, driver gadgets and things that they can they can mess around with any roll bars uh, on the oval. They can they can move the cross weight on the car, and that's a, that's also another driver characteristic to be able to stay up with the car and be changing it throughout the run and be able to make it so that it does what you need it to do to be the quickest. And so, but yeah, I mean, I think a driver that everybody wants to, you know, sort of say I'm the man with the hair on the chest and I can drive a loose race car because somehow that is supposedly the most manly way to drive a car where the thing's almost spinning out all the time. I, I see both and they're both quick. They're just two different ways that people arrive at the same lap time and yet the cars look totally different throughout the corner. Um, but it all comes down to the driver, you know, pushing that car to whatever limit it has and then being able to adapt to it. And some can adapt to the understeer better and some can adapt to the oversteer better. No, no one way makes more hair on your chest. <laughs> hmm. And it's interesting too, because, you know, in essence, what, what Greg is asking is, you know, these driving styles, it's, uh, I'm always been a big basketball fan. You look at Stephen Curry's shot from the three-point line, and it is very specific, very unique to him. But that ball goes into the, you know, th- through the basket, through the hoop, the same way that you know everybody else's three-pointer goes through the hoop. But how they shoot how the ball leaves their hand, the arc that it travels, the force that is used uh, you know, to launch it and get there, that's the unique part. So as you were mentioning, if we're looking at qualifying for wherever, you might see that Will Powers on the pole and uh, you know, a millionth of a second slower is you know, Bourdais and you know, a millionth slower than him is Hinchcliffe. And you go, well, they're all kind of driving the same thing. They've all ended up with essentially the same lap time within, you know, fractions of a second. But uh, don't mistake those uh, items for meaning that they are driving the same way. They're, you know, that same kind of Steph Curry arc or way or force. There are so many differences in what drivers do to achieve the same outcome uh, that it is really remarkable. And, you know, you look at someone like, uh, Bourdais, who does prefer that really stable uh, rear. He's an understeer guy. He can adapt. He, he's more than capable of adapting. But to Seb, uh, the back of the car has to be completely settled for him to be in his true comfort zone. And then managing the understeer that comes through the corner, that's his ability to do that and how he does that is exceptional that's what makes him you know a four-time champion scott dixon driving the same delara dw12 with the same honda engine and the same universal aero kit on it will go through that same corner in a completely different driving manner different driving style dixon on the other hand uh, whereas as bourdais prefers understeer dixon will actually tell you I don't like oversteer. I'm not looking for oversteer. What I want is the nose of the car to be completely locked down and solid. As you mentioned, the front of the car is planted uh, just as the way that Seb wants the rear of the car planted. But with Dixon, he realizes that if the front of the car is planted for me, that in my mind makes sense. 
that to my hands, my feet, everything, that computes perfectly. Now, if I'm turning through the corner and the front is glued and the rear is unsettled and maybe stepping out a little bit, uh, he's happy to catch that. But, you know, whereas, whereas Dixon is turning through a corner at St. Pete or wherever at high speed and feeding in a little bit of opposite lock because the back end is stepping out, Seb, maybe ahead of him or behind him, is doing the exact opposite. He's actually turning the steering wheel a little bit more to get it around the corner. Yet again, by the lap time and by the looks, um, you know, it's happening so quickly it's almost imperceptible. But funny thing is, Greg, you throw, uh, I was just going to say, John, you throw Dixon into Bourdais's car and he'd come back and say, uh, and step right out, I can't drive it. What the hell, what, what the hell's wrong with Bourdais? You throw Bourdais in Dixon's car and he'd do the same thing. What, what is wrong with this guy? He calls this a setup, yet in the cars set up the way that they want individually, um, you know, it, it fits like a glove. And then you take it one step further and you say, okay, every corner, let's say there's a series of corners, a chicane or other things, and you think, well, there's, there's really one way to, to do that. And you'd be surprised <laughs> how guys manage to do things totally different, and yet they still come out with the same result, where they... Um, they'll throw away a different corner than somebody else in, in a series of corners, and and so then you're you're sitting there trying to figure out, okay, was it is it just him, or is that the way to do it? Is that the is that going to be the quickest way? And it's amazing how they figure it out because there's no engineer that's going to say, okay, if you do this, this, and this in these corners, that that's what's going to be the quickest way, because they don't know. I mean, because it's how you jump the curves. Where, where you're going to do this, how you're going to brake, when you're going to let the car... I mean, it, there's, a, there's, there's so many different things that are happening uh, in milliseconds every time. And, and what's interesting, like I said, when you go out there and you watch and you, you really get to up on top and you can see the driver's hands and you can see some of the things that they're doing, it's really amazing to watch with, with some of these, these racers. And actually, at this level, all of them, what, kind of what they pull off. <laughs> I mean, it's theoretically sometimes you sit there and go, "That's that catches my breath." Watching. Wow. Well, let's close, John, with a final question from Will Dale, and this uh, plucks at my little uh, down under heartstrings, having been to the event and been uh, down under a couple of times for races. How did John come to race in the Bathurst One Thousand? In 19, uh, was that 88 or not? I'm forgetting exactly what year, but uh, how did you come to race there and what did you think of the circuit and the event? Well, uh, I raced a lot of different things. I've actually raced midgets in, in Australia. I raced, of course, Indy cars and then to get to race in the Bathurst 1000, it was Gary Rogers on the race team. And, and it was, I don't even know, I can't even remember, to be honest with you, how, how it all came together, but the opportunity came up and I thought, this, this would be great. And um, unfortunately, I got hurt earlier in the IndyCar year at Pocono, and I was still recovering. I was still in crutches, and I ran the Nazareth race, and I was on crutches. And it actually took seven different flights to get to, <laughs> to Australia, or to actually to get to, 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 I think it was Melbourne, and then it was like another hour drive from there. And as I'm walking out of the airport on my crutches, 
this guy's got this sign that says Johnny Andretti, and, and he's like trying to get out of my view. It's like I'm blocking, I'm blocking him from finding out where John is. And I walked up to him and I said, "Yeah, you know, I, I'm him." He goes, "You know, you, you got to drive, mate." And I said, "I, I, I can't walk, but I can drive." And um, then we actually went and did the race, and and unfortunately, actually, I got to the. I love the track. It's really, really technical and. And difficult. I mean, it, those cars are unique. I mean, I had to I had to shift with my left hand for the first time, and so there was a lot of things that were a little bit different. But we, I ended up blowing a tire at the top of the hill as you were coming around, cresting one of the corners, and I blew an outside tire and I went into the, the outside wall. And um, and the thing is, I already had hurt my feet, and so when I got to the infield care center, they were. They they got banged up in the pedals, so they were they opened up a little Whoa. bit, and so they were bleeding, and um, and they said, "Oh, you can't you can't leave. We have to send you to the hospital." And I was like, "You're not sending me to the hospital." I took seven flights to get here. I'm not leaving. <laughs> yeah, I I I came with this. You know, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave here, and uh, and I said, "My wife will be here soon with my crutches," and, and so. And I'm just gonna walk out, and and they um, they fought me about it, but there was there was nothing they could do. We were halfway around the world, although they could have taken my FIA license, um, which would have been a problem. But they they didn't end up not doing that. And I spent the next I don't know week or so with Gary Rogers and saw Far Lap's heart, and, and and which is you know the racehorse and all that. And we we did a lot of different things together. But it was it's an amazing place to go and to get the race and the people are so nice and, and Gary Rogers was a was a real awesome guy. I mean he was he was great to work with and I feel horrible that that happened but it wasn't something that was in my control. But anyway it was it was fun to do. I'd love to go do it again and Bathurst is one of the great races. I mean some people probably haven't even heard of Bathurst but the Bathurst one thousand is is truly a fun race and, and the cars down there are just Austin drive and they're, they're nothing like back then they were called Commodores and everything yep. else and they might still have that down there and and uh, but they're they're great little they're great race cars and fun to drive and I had a good time I just wish the result would have been different I wish I wouldn't have been down there on crutches and all that but you know I still got to race the Bathurst 1000 and I got to be part of it uh, unfortunately we didn't get to finish it well Considering what your cousin has done since he's now a uh, co-owner of a uh, of a V8 team, I'm thinking a uh, John and Jarrett Andretti Bathurst entry. I mean, come on, man! Is there anything cooler than that? We need to uh, we need to prod Michael to make that happen. Yeah, I think uh, Zach. Got to call Zach too. Uh, Zach Brown. So I think um, that's one of the teams they have together, and so that I'm all for that. I mean. Um, Jared, Jared probably wanted a younger teammate, but um, but <laughs> but I'll still squeeze in there, you know, and have to have to get down to his fighting weight a little bit, but we can do that too. And, you know, it'd be it'd be a lot of fun. There, obviously, the competition there is as keen as it is anywhere else, and so it's not some place you just walk in and you know expect to expect to take something away from somebody, but it would it would be. Um, be a pleasure to go down there it'd be it'd be fun just to go down there and see gary rogers again to be honest with you 
he uh i got to know gary a little bit uh my couple trips down there to cover races and one of the great characters uh and i mean look most australians are great characters so uh, it's kind of hard not to uh, fall in love with the place and uh their passion for racing well mr andretti i'm gonna tell you something you already you already know you're a treasure thank you for uh dedicating this time for us this week thank you for being a hell of an inspiration and uh as you know you're one of the good ones but you uh you have an impact that goes beyond the racetrack and uh i think honestly when we look back at those in the sport who we appreciate who uh, leave great things behind uh victories and trophies and all that kind of stuff those are great but uh you're doing stuff that actually directly impacts the lives of young people, old people, all kinds of people, men and women. So, thank you, man. This is this has probably been the uh, the coolest episode for me uh, that we've recorded so far, and really appreciative you took the time. Well, I gotta tell you that it's it's been an honor. I mean, you got so many other people that are um, more charismatic. Uh, more successful maybe in, in so many different ways and that um, that you certainly could call out to, to be on your show and so it was an honor and privilege to be part of it and, and I appreciate you thinking of me and, and uh, making me a part of this show and, and I'm glad to get the word out and, and appreciate everything you've done to help do that. <laughs>